0: Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Hey everyone, this is Bo York, producer of Pass the Mic and executive producer for The Witness. You know, it's interesting. I always look at podcasts as kind of audio time capsules. So, for those of you who are listening to this as soon as it comes out, you're well aware we are still in the midst of this global pandemic. And as a result, we've been adjusting our schedules, but also making sure that we're taking care of our families in the midst of this crisis. This week, Tyler has asked that we share a talk that he gave early this year at Lee University. But before that, though, I want to encourage you to check out the various channels that The Witness has across social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, as we've got some announcements coming soon that you definitely won't want to miss out on. Now, please enjoy this talk from Tyler Burns at Lee University. Well, good evening, Lee University. How are you? Okay, so uh, they said y'all were going to accommodate my blackness, okay? I am a black preacher, which means I'm dialogical, which means I like when you talk back to me, okay? Let's try that again. Good evening, the University. Good evening. Very good. Um, thank you so much for being out here um, with the weather as it is. It is my honor to stand before you today and to deliver this lecture to you. Um, However, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge some people who made this possible. And first, of course, uh, Dr. Mary McCampbell uh, for bringing me here. Thank you so much. I I just want to uh, affirm and acknowledge um, in the time that we've uh, had over the past couple of days that I'm encouraged by what you do. You matter to the students on this campus. And thank you so much for for who you are. I also want to acknowledge a few other people um, Uh, Yes, Dr. Arley, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, I'm sorry. Tagayuna. Tagayuna. Okay, great. Uh, We had so much fun this morning at breakfast. Uh, Thank you so much for showing me such tremendous hospitality, and then also Professor Merle Dirksen as well. I don't think he is able to be here tonight, but I want to acknowledge him. Um, They have been just awesome in their hospitality. Also someone who I look up to uh, on social media is here. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns from Pentecostal Theological (laughs) Center. Uh, So when I found out she was coming, I redid everything uh, to make sure that it would be acceptable. Uh, No, but thank you so much for coming and supporting. Uh, And then finally, last but not least, uh, the Lee Yu uh, Black Student Union. gonna give the Black Student Union some love. Um, You are tremendous. You are awesome. Uh, Your powerful Kira, the entire crew, um, and in the words of a very famous person, we us, we us, <laughs> we all we got. <laughs> Everybody reflect on this idea the fierce urgency of black Christianity, the fierce urgency of black Christianity. In the middle of April in 1963, a young preacher and activist traveled to northern Alabama. To join a campaign of nonviolent direct action organized by the Southern Christian Leadership Council. Now, this city was named Birmingham, more infamously at this time, it was called Bombingham because of the racial terror and violence that was present there, and was one of the most racially divided areas in the entire United States. Black citizens were regularly the victims of both violent and implicit racial bias experienced tangible economic and legal consequences. The SCLC organized what it had called the Birmingham Movement, or the Birmingham Campaign, to advocate on behalf of the city's black residents. The pastor taking the trek into danger, of course, was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Just one week after the protests and the movement began, a local judge delivered an injunction that banned demonstrating and boycotting and initiated consequences for taking part in these forms of direct action. Two days after that statement, on Good Friday, Dr. King and other leaders were arrested and thrown into jail in Birmingham. Ironically, that same day, a group of white pastors published an open letter in response to Dr. King and his colleagues, ironically titled, A Call for Unity. In it, these Episcopal, Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Baptist clergymen, along with the Jewish rabbi, some groups who normally can't agree on much of anything, they publicly rebuked the actions of the protesters, urging them to protest the right way. If you have a grievance with the system, go through the courts. They can be trusted. They also took aim at Dr. King, calling him an outsider, a common term, derogatory term used for racial agitators and protesters. While in prison, Dr. King received a copy of this letter and was so vexed that he wrote his own response. You may have heard of it. It's famously called The Letter from a Birmingham Jail. In this now classic work of literature and writing, Dr. King delivers deft rebuttals to his white colleagues, including a few scathing quotations. And I'll read these. They're quite lengthy, but I think we should reflect on these in their totality. The first says, and I quote: "I must make two confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens' counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension." To a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection, end quote. And the second one, if that weren't enough, and I quote, Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often an art supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are, in King took the unity that they thought they had, that these white pastors thought they promoted, and he redefined it. He reintroduced it. He reclaimed it pushing it beyond the borders of what these pastors deemed to be acceptable. He reclaimed their terms in ways that fit his experience, while also challenging their fidelity to the Christian cause. Now, in this moment and throughout his activist career, Dr. King experienced what so many black Christians and black people have felt in our intersections with broader society. You see, it goes without saying, but it's, it's it serves some utility to make the implicit, explicit. Black people in society have just never seem to fully fit in. It's a reality we share with other ethnic minority groups. And in our case, we are so used to hearing what people say beneath what they say. They say we are too loud. That our laughter is too boisterous. That our celebration is too disturbing. That we sing and shout too much. We're too loud. They say we are too emotional. Calm down. Come up with a good argument, compose yourself, be intellectual. They say we are too complex. Make it simple. Is it really that complicated? They say we are too unorthodox because we're different than what the status quo says we must be wrong. Because we're going in a different way, because we have a different experience, there must be something wrong with those people. We are hyper-visible, yet invisible. We are tokenized and weaponized. We are stigmatized and marginalized. We are attacked yet ignored. We are applauded yet disregarded. We just don't seem to fit in. We're too much. While not all black people have this same experience, enough have experienced this reality to identify with it. They say we are too much. Same thing they said to Dr. King. Yet, the reason I'm here tonight is in spite of all of this, In spite of the opposition, in spite of the obstacles, we are still here. And we have a story to tell. We have a story that dates back centuries to foreign lands untouched by Western imperialism. We have a story that crossed the Middle Passage and brought us to a land where we have never fully been accepted. This is why there's a Black History Month, not because we really wanted those 28 days, but because our story matters. And in the words of the ancient Civil Rights song, Ain't Nobody, Ain't nobody gonna turn us around. Long before Dr. King was present in the dangerously divided city of Birmingham, another clergyman, another rabbi, also disrupted the division of his day. You may have heard of him, his name is Jesus. The story is found for us in Mark chapter 12 when a fellow teacher of the law approached Jesus and asked him a question. You're familiar with this, Mark chapter 12. Verse 28 through 31 is the reference. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the the most important? Which is the greatest? Verse 29 says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus steps into a common debate in the Pharisaical circles and provides crystal clarity. In a way, he takes their ideas of commandments and redefines them. He reclaims them. He reintroduces them to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, some of you have come here tonight because you're excited to hear something that relates to black history and the black church during Black History Month. Welcome. Others of you have come tonight because you are curious, perhaps even skeptical, I will say. That's fine. You're welcome, too. The first part of the title of this lecture is derived from a common speech, a popular speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave a year before he was killed in 1967 when he said, We need to embrace the fierce urgency of now. The second part says black Christianity. As a housekeeping note, I've used the term black Christianity because there's much confusion about what actually constitutes the black church. In fact, the original black church, as a, from a historic perspective, only included a set number of denominations. So I've used the term black Christianity, or you will hear me say black Christian expression, to talk about the panorama of what it means to be black and Christian. So if you're here and you didn't grow up in a black church, it doesn't make you any less of a black Christian. If you're here and you grew up in a multi-ethnic context or a more evangelical setting, maybe you didn't even come from the States. You're still part of this tradition. Just don't forget where you came from. The black Christian tradition has formed me. I am what churches infamously call a PK. Any PKs in the house? I'm uncomfortably aware of what it means to lack agency when it comes to attending church. PK's know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Every Sunday morning, and every Wednesday night for Bible study. And every Tuesday night for the leadership meeting. And every Thursday night for choir rehearsal. And every Saturday morning for evangelism. And every and every and every and every, and every. does anyone know what I'm talking about? It seemed like seven out of seven days, I was in church. And don't make the mistake of ever giving an excuse for why you can't go to church. My parents will quickly remind me that while I do have rights in the American context, I don't have rights in their house. <laughs> and why not? Because I don't pay the bills. Because I don't pay the mortgage. You know, all the things that black parents typically say. <laughs> Yet at the same time where I was being dragged to church against my will, I was receiving a Christian education, something that I thought would shape me for the rest of my life. And I was being taught about church history, but oddly enough, they left out the part where our people contributed. An educational curriculum that was supposedly rooted in scripture, but seemed to be devoid of black faces and black voices and black scholarship. And statements were made about the primitive nature of modern churches and not so subtle jab to the shouting emotional churches like mine. And so because they taught me what I thought to be the truth, I believed them. Began to hate myself. Began to look suspiciously at church. It wasn't just that I was there all the time. Why were not we like the other churches? What's wrong with us? Why are we so emotional? Why are we so loud? I started to parrot the oppressors. I started to parrot the white churches that told me who I should be. Not who I was in Christ. So I figured that my expression was wrong, that my blackness was offensive, that I had something to be ashamed of. But as one writer has famously said, no lie can live forever. In my adulthood, I have read our story. It is beautiful. It is complicated. It is an emotional story of our heritage, our contribution to the kingdom of God. And seeing with clear eyes that we are beautiful and valuable that we have something to say. That is why it is my contention that the black Christian expression has something to teach the Western church. We have something to say, something to contribute, perhaps even something to lead in. My contention is not that we should be preferred or superior. God's kingdom is far too big and vast for one part of his children, one group of his children, to be the only way but that our viewpoint is unique. It's just a little bit different. As Gardner Taylor once said, a marginalized and disregarded and disallowed community, listen, may be the only community equipped to speak objectively to a society in which it has not been allowed to be an integral part. Mm -hmm. A marginalized, disregarded, disallowed community. And as I think back on my church expression I lament the fact that I didn't appreciate what was happening, how my character, how my emotions, how my mind was being formed in the black church. I look back with regret. But thankfully to God, now I can lead that same church that I grew up in. But I still think about all the students, all the kids, maybe some of you in this audience who have the same story. What about it did we miss? What did we not see? And as I've reapproached the scriptures, as I've reapproached my story, I believe that the black church has a complex and unique way of interpreting this greatest commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I believe that's what we have to teach the Western church. Four key areas. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart. What is the black Christian expression? say about loving God with all of our heart. The heart obviously refers to the core of our being, our affections, our feelings. And if there's one thing people know about black churches, black Christian experience can operate in the arena of feelings. It does not express fear or anxiety when it thinks of emotional engagement, but rather we see this as the core of what it means to be human, as the core of what it means to serve God. Black Christian expression is often engaging God within the context of our emotional processing. Are you in touch with your emotions tonight? Can you be moved? Can you be startled? Can you be disturbed?
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers. But maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28th, 2022, and use promo code one twenty twenty two. That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping.
0: Black churches, if you've ever been to them... They have a few common rituals that involve engaging our emotions, right? First one is the shout. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't start nothing, it won't be nothing. That's all I First one is the shout. It's so interesting and paradoxical, isn't it, that we'll get dressed up in our Sunday best, but we'll sweat it out if we have to. <laughs> the shout is a response to something that the preacher has said. The choir has sung, but most importantly, an ultimate response to what God has said. We respond emotionally, not stoically. We respond with our whole bodies, clapping and singing and shouting and running around the church if they let us. Why? Because we are engaging with grief and anger and loss and celebration and sadness and terror and despondency. We shout to cope with what's happening in our lives, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be racism. Maybe the ends don't meet at the end of the month. Maybe our children have left the faith. Maybe yet another black child was shot and killed in the streets. Maybe we're just overwhelmed and tired, but we shout, anticipating that there is a God who can hear us and do something about it. Another staple of black Christian expression is the hoop. What's the hoop? It's the song at the end of the sermon. I'm not going to hoop. I can't do it, okay? Some of y'all are looking like, oh, you about to do it? No, are not about to do it. The hoop is when a pastor who is vocally capable, of course, (laughs) at the end of his last point, his voice will start to change. And he'll start to raise his anticipation. And he'll start to sing in a little bit of a melody. And somehow or another, he'll make all the words fit in that bar structure. I don't know how they do that. (laughs) And then the organ will come in. And then the drums will come in. And the people will respond and he'll sing the rest of his sermon. I don't know how they do it. (laughs) But the intonation is a moment of spirit-led spontaneity. It is a moment when the pastor doesn't just preach his sermon, he embodies his sermon. Where the word of God then becomes part of his emotional core and is expressed to the entirety of the congregation. It's a moment because it's not something that's necessarily always practiced and prepared and planned. But yet the spirit is in it. Final thing that you see in black churches or the final thing I'll mention is the call and the response. Some of you have done it tonight. Others of you didn't come from that environment, so you don't know why people are talking back to me. (laughs) But when the pastor says something, the pastor is not just speaking into an empty void. We believe that the sermon, the preach word of God is dialogical. It's not a monologue. It's a conversation. That means that when we say something from the pulpit, you can say something back. And when you say something back, that exchange is not merely performative, but there's power in it. Because it means that as you repeat it, it gets in your soul. It gets in your spirit. As you repeat it, you start to believe it. The call and response, the hoop, the shout. In the black Christian expression, we see the emotional core of lament and excitement and joy and anger and sadness and terror and despondency and disappointment in our interactions with God. We're honest enough to come to him as we are with all of our affections in tow. And we throw them at the altar, these complex, contradictory messages. And we say, God, do something with this. Do you have an emotional core? Are you in touch with your emotions? Can you be moved? Can you be disturbed? Can you be startled? In a time when children are separated from their parents at the border, when hashtags and dead black bodies litter our streets, when moral consistency is sacrificed on the altar of political expediency, the church needs some emotion. The church needs to feel The church needs to engage with God in the complexity of our heart's affections. It's not enough just to speak. We need to cry. It's not enough just to say, that's bad. We need to scream and shout. It's not enough just to be on our knees. We need to move on our feet. The black Christian expression offers you an emotional core. Secondly, love the Lord your God with all your soul. In other words, love the Lord your God in all of your embodied self. Much of Western theology can fall prey to being compartmentalized or broken up into different areas, arenas, with different rules of engagement. Breaking up life into compartments of sacred and secular. It's rooted in an escapism of a world by and by. Black Christians have always derived comfort from the idea of the sweet old by and by. But we've also strived to give meaning to what we call the nasty here and now. We live in a time where we orient ourselves to Christian cliches like just preach the gospel. As if the gospel has nothing to say to our present social reality. King faced these same retorts. You know what he called them? He called them pious irrelevancies. Sanctimonious trivialities. Does the gospel speak to all of you? Not just your soul, your body too. We are embodied. Dale Andrews, the famous theologian, he put it like this in his book, Practical Theology for Black Churches. He says, and I quote, At its heart, the church as refuge was a place for the critical affirmation of human value and human needs, which included liberation a unique confluence of psychological and socio-political interests emerged under this historical ecclesial image. Again, this development was a natural consequence of the people facing dehumanizing social conflict. Black churches were quite intentional in shaping nurturing communities and feasible forms of social protest, end quote. Black Christian spaces have the ability to allow us, perhaps in the only place in all of society, to be fully embodied. Fully ourselves. In all of its complexity and contradiction. It's something that we live in daily. It's a unique and paradoxical complexity. Because other people can't seem to make sense of how we can do all this at the same time. There was a few years ago, I our church was hosting an event with a fellowship of Christian churches, who we are still a part of, they'll probably hear this. I love y'all anyway. And it was predominantly white churches. And being one of the pastors at the host church, they asked me to preach on the future of the charismatic movement. They asked me to give a lecture similar to what I'm giving now, but you know, a few levels down. You know, because I wasn't really. <laughs> so I said, "Sure, yeah, no problem. I love that. That's my jam. I love doing that. Love it." That's what I told them too. I said the exact thing. That's my jam. <laughs> sometimes I code switch. sometimes I don't. <laughs> and so I got up and I gave the lecture to majority white audience, mostly white-haired, gray-haired, had fun. People loved it. Well, later on that night, we were in charge of the worship. And so part of the worship that we were in charge of. Y'all messy. <laughs> Y'all like, yeah, 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 what happened? Part of the worship that we were in charge of was we wanted to give them an authentic NDCC experience. New Dimensions Christian Center Incorporated. (laughs) Is this a church or a business? What is happening And so we tapped the step team. And we said, come on out and step. Now, they didn't know it, but I'm part of the step team don't play with me I'm not doing nothing okay? I'm part of the step team in the front row of the step team enjoy it, love it and so I got up and led the step team and I shouted and all of a sudden our bodies became instruments and we moved as one and we felt connected and we sweat and we stuck our tongues out and we laughed and we stepped out scripture and theological terms. And we danced. And I jumped off the stage. Oh, yeah, we go hard. We go hard. And they liked it. But I saw a little confusion in their face. You know how the people, when, the, when something's happened, they don't know what to do with it. They're like, ah. It was Like all that one three energy, <laughs> and I was like, That's cool, like, do your thing. I, I, I like it, it's cool. Until one of the theological leaders in the association came up to me, I was standing next to my father who founded our church, and um, uh, standing next to him, and we were talking and you know, sharing back and forth. And by that time, I changed back into you know, the, the suit and all that it was you know, ready to go back into that mode. And he comes in between us and says, wow, that was really something. Wow. He said, you know what? I looked up there and I remember you speaking earlier at the lecture. And I looked up and I squinted and I tilted my head to the side. And I said, is that the same person? And he like, ha, 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 ha. And so I looked at my dad. You know how you talk about somebody while they're standing right there? So I looked at my dad and I tapped him.
1: And I said, you
0: see this? You don't think we can do both. establishment that we are in control not of our minds just of our minds and our mouths but our full bodies as well we can do both we can stand up and preach and we can dance we can sing and we can shout we can dissect theology and we can quote Kendrick Lamar we can do both (laughs) Why? Because we just want to be edgy and cool and cultural. We don't know how to be anything but our full selves, our fully embodied souls. So we love the Lord, our God, with all of us. Are you embodied? Have you bought into the disembodied idea of theology that is separated and bifurcated and dichotomized? We don't do all that. The black Christian expression gives you permission to be your fully embodied self. That is not just for us, but we welcome you in and say, join us. Because there is something that God will do in your, in your soul and in your spirit when you are fully yourself. That's how he created you. Number three, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Now, certainly at an institution of higher learning... Most of us can get behind the idea of loving God with all of our minds, right? As a matter of fact, for many of us, and for many of you, it's your job. It's your life. Christians from all different traditions honor God in the intellectual ascent of higher learning, right? But it is important to say that a black Christian perspective on loving God with all of our minds is not merely intellectual, it is imaginative. Willie Jennings, the famous theologian, puts it like this, and I quote, We have lost the imaginative capacity for how to form theological interests and thinkers. We have lost our imagination. You see, when it comes to loving God with all of our minds, it is not simply just the reading of books and the studying of theology. It is the prophetic imagination that gives us eyes to see the not yet in the middle of the already. This is what King so poignantly displays at the march at Washington. When he was instructed by Mahalia Jackson, Martin, tell him about the dream. Did you know that? Yes. He was going to give another speech, but in the spontaneity of call and response, remember, loving the Lord with all of our heart. Mahalia Jackson says, Martin, nah, tell him about the dream. In that moment, he had the spontaneity to paint an imaginative picture of a reality that was not yet present. He also displayed this imagination during the last speech he delivered before he was assassinated. He said, I may not get there with you. But I'm here to tell you, we as a people will get to the promised land. He said, I've been to the mountaintop. Literally, no. In his imagination. His prophetic imagination allowed him to see something that was not yet present. Black Christians have faced such an onslaught of bigotry and the horror of racial injustice and marginalization that the vision for our lives and our future must come from somewhere else. That's why we say we must walk by faith and not by sight in order to survive. We sing prophetically of realities that are not yet here. That's why we keep reminding y'all that our God is a God who can make a way out of no way. Imagination. We dance hopefully so that metaphorical chains will fall off of our souls and our spirits. We shout in expectation that somewhere, somehow, the God of the universe hears our cries, even though we can't see him. And we live in light of those who have come before and will come behind us. That's why we sing, We Shall Overcome Someday because we realize that we might not ever see what we strive for. But we can still work towards it. One day, we'll win. That great eschatological hope, the kingdom of God, that Jesus will come back and make everything right, do you have an imagination to see? Do you have an imagination to see a more just world, more equitable You know, today, Christians have lost their imagination. They operate in the arena of false equivalency. What about ism? They're trying to serve political agendas. Trying to follow set talking points. But not thinking about the imaginative nature of constructing a holistic, prophetic moral witness it will naturally confound the people who we deal with. It will naturally confound the status quo and the powers. But if we want to reclaim the soul of this nation, if we want to reclaim the moral authority of the church, we need some young people who have a desire to be imaginative. Not just intellectual, but to create the new thing that hasn't been done yet. To say the thing that needs to be said. Can you imagine more just and equitable city. More just and equitable campus. More just, more equitable department. A more just and equitable family. Can you imagine the shalom of God truly expressed and present in your reality? The black Christian expression. It invites you to come and see some things that you may have never seen. It offers you an imagination. Finally. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. I want to ask you something tonight, Lee University. Where is your strength? After you've talked about your emotions and your feelings, after you have embodied the truth of God, after you have had an intellect and developed an imagination, get up and do something. It ain't enough to get a degree. Excuse me. It isn't enough to get a degree. (laughs) It's not enough to have the job and the car and the bank account. It's not enough to prove your haters wrong, whoever they may be out there in the world. Get up and do something. See, I stand in the tradition of a strength-led people. Get up and do something, people. Because when the spirit gets inside of us, we are compelled to speak, it's like fire shut up in our bones. We can't sit in a society that is unjust and inequitable in the ways like our society is. We gotta get up and do something. You see, I stand in the strength of a tradition, the strength of a Lotto Equiano, a former slave who displayed strength enough to write stories of oppression so that following generations can hear us tell our stories. I stand in the tradition, the strength of Sojourner Truth. When the world tried to redefine womanhood and edit out black women, she had the strength to stand up and say, ain't I a woman? I stand in the tradition, the strength of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. When they knelt to pray in the wrong section of the Methodist church and were pulled out, they said, we don't need your church. We'll start a denomination ourselves. I stand in the strength of Frederick Douglass, who was a powerful trumpet for justice, who spoke unafraid and unapologetically to the power structures and the status quo. I stand in the strength of Ida B. Wells, who never held her tongue when truth needed to be spoken. I stand in the strength of Howard Thurman, who talked about the disinherited and the dispossessed and the disallowed. I stand in the strength of Fannie Lou Hamer, who spoke truth in public regardless of the consequences. I stand in the tradition of Merle Evers, who took on the work after her husband, Medgar, was killed and shot down dead in front of his family. I stand in the strength of Coretta Scott King, who carried on her husband's legacy and took it further than probably he ever could. I stand in the strength of Bree Newsom, who climbed up a flagpole and tore down a symbol of hate from high places. I stand in the strength of Sabrina Fulton, after her hoodie-wearing son, Trayvon Martin, is gunned down, she finds the strength to continue on his memory. I stand in the strength of Lucy McBath, whose son Jordan Davis was killed because a white man didn't like the fact that he played his music too loud, so she said, I'll run for Congress to change the law. I stand in the strength of Colin Kaepernick, who said, I'll put it all on the line, but I need to draw attention to things that affect my people. I stand in the strength of activists in Ferguson and St. Louis, and Philadelphia and New York and Sanford and Green Bay and Toledo and Pensacola. I stand in the strength of slaves who met in hush harbors and grove trees just to show their slave masters and plantation owners that whips and chains and ropes don't scare us. I stand in the strength of historic black churches in Atlanta and Montgomery and Selma and Birmingham where they kept coming to church because they said ropes and dogs and bombs can't stop us. I stand in the strength of a tradition that says I may be in a bad situation right now, but trouble don't last always. I stand in the strength of a tradition that says I may be fatigued by life, but the black women of Montgomery bus Boycott declare that my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. I stand in the strength of a tradition that says my head is so low and beaten down by life, but something inside tells me to lift up my eyes to see where my help comes from. I stand in the strength of a tradition that says weeping may endure for a night, but I've decided not to give up. Why? Because joy comes in the morning. Where is your strength tonight, Lee University? Do you have the power to see something that you can't see? Do you have the power to get up and and materialize that world in your local community? God bless you and God keep you, but I'm going to remind you, you need some strength. After that, you've believed in your emotions. After you fully embodied yourself. After you have an intellect and an imagination, get up and do something. And sing the old song, Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Turn me around. Turn me around. I'm gonna keep a walking and keep a talking. I'm gonna walk and I'm gonna sing, walking into freedom land. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Thank you, the University.